Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, creeps. Uh, welcome to uh, the current, latest, most uh, happening at this very moment episode <laughs> of Horror Vanguard. I am joined, as always, by my co-ghost, John. How's it going? Good, good. Very, very excited to be back down the content mines, producing more spooky podcast goodness. And and today we are we're not recording in our, our subterranean crypt beneath the Horror Vanguard Gothic Manor. We are recording in our undersea research facility because we are joined by shark expert Dr. Kaya Frank. How's it going? Uh, really well. Nice to be talking to you guys. <laughs> and so, I'm not um, I'm a shark expert. I, I think I think you'll count. I think you'll count, or maybe like bad shark movie shark expert. Yeah, yeah. I, everything I've learned, I learned from Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I won't go to the sea. It's pretty much a documentary, so we're we're safe there. But for our, our listeners who maybe uh, don't frequent the the shark shark universe, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. Um, so I'm Dr. Kai Frank, as you said, and um, my area of specialism is really monstru- uh, monsters, but particularly monstrous animals. So I started with werewolves and wolves, but I've been moving into sharks and trolls. I also will admit that one of the main reasons why I have started looking at sharks and the eco-gothic is because I have been obsessed with terrible B-movie creature features from a very young age. So all your Lake Placids, your Jaws, your Sharknados, anything like that, I'm going to try and watch it. That's amazing. Sounds like a, yeah, it sounds like a great great way of spending some time, to be honest. (laughs) Gothic studies is the coolest academic field ever, because where else could you say like, oh, you know, I started with werewolves, but as I, as I grew as an academic, I've moved into giant shark monsters. (laughs) else where you can do that i think the first time i realized was when my dad came in when i was an undergrad and was like why are you watching buffy aren't you meant to be working and i was like um, this is work dad uh this I... is a serious academic pursuit come on <laughs> yeah why are you mocking this um and actually on the same note one of when I, I went on a walking holiday with my dad and I tried to explain what eco-gothic was and the example I used was Jaws because it was <laughs> one of the best known and most impactful texts I could use. Um, so some of the other things I was studying, like my dad was like, no, I've never heard of that. But this particular with Jaws, I'm like, All right, you watched Jaws, dad. Yeah. Did it make you not want to get in the sea? Yeah. Were you scared of great white sharks? Yeah. <laughs> That's the eco-gothic. Done. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think maybe that's a good place of kind of jumping in. Maybe we can start by talking about uh, what is it about sharks that makes them so suitable for horror and for the gothic? So for me, it's multiple things. So firstly, 
I would say, broadly speaking, when it comes to depictions of animals, you either are going to have pack animals, uh, ideally swarms, so rats and so forth. We see that sort of in Dracula. Or mm. what you want is a sort of charismatic apex predator. And that's where uh, sharks come in. There's specifically great white sharks. They're huge. Um, they're fast. And they're a lot bigger than us, which seems a really flippant thing to say. They also inhabit a space that we're not masters of. As a human, if I get into the water, I'm completely, you know, at a loss. Um, the final thing I think is interesting is they're ancient. Mm. So repeatedly in descriptions, people refer to them as being wonderful killers, but they haven't really changed a great deal. And so there's something almost atavistic about them and about their presence. Uh, this idea of, you know, them coming up from the deep. And as they come up from the deep, it's like a, a visual um, return of the repressed uh, and a return of something, an ancient evil as well. So for me, that's what I think it is about sharks. That's really cool. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's if you think about as well um, the way that if you ever see shark movies, um, there's something about the way that they put the camera. And again, I'm thinking of, of, of Jaws. And at first, it's that not seeing it. So the opening scene of Jaws, you, you don't see the shark. You just know it's there from the violence that it's creating. Mm. But it but often what you're seeing is above the surface where we can live. So he comes up, grabs the swimmer, um, and it's mainly her thrashing about on the surface, and you just have to imagine what's happening underneath the surface, uh, which is just an incredibly gothic way of thinking about violence and about horror. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ash, you, you know more about uh, shark movies than me, so, so what are your thoughts I, I mean, like, in, in the last, I don't know, what, what has this been now, like, just four minutes, I have fundamentally had my opinion of, like, Avalanche Shark completely changed. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is, like, a fantastic, this is fantastic. Like, I think, um, because a lot of, a lot of, like, shark movies are historically disposable, right? You know, Jaws is kind of, it's, it's accidentally a classic and a wild runaway success, but the vast majority of shark films, like all the Jaws clones, and then you get into like the like mega shark versus sharktopus territory, and like those are like and Sharknado, obviously the the the, the crown prince of disposable like made for TV shark movies. They're all meant to be thrown away, but they still fit in perfectly with with mm. how you're talking about like this gothicized cinematography. The other thing I find quite interesting about shark films, and as I've been watching it, there's one of the big issues, I think, from a narrative point of view, is the very simple way of dealing with shark attacks is don't go in the water. <laughs> so yeah. the first thing they have to do is find a reason why you have to get into the water. Now, with Jaws, it's all about money. 
it's all about, well, this is tourism. We can't lose tourists. Um, it's really, really important that we have people. And part of that fun of being a tourist is the pleasure of getting into the sea and the water. And I love swimming. So all jokes aside, it's one of, it's one <laughs> of my favorite places to be. So it's, it's that I want to get in. There's something delicious. It, it's about relaxing. It's about feeling safe. I'm on holiday. Um, but the other thing that you see is, is if you can't get a reason for us to get into the water, so maybe it's like 40, uh, 48 feet down where they shove you in a cage and you're under the water or um, open water where the di- you know the divers end up just stuck um, or something like the shallows most recently with Blake Lively when you're out on an island, like a small island, what you then have to do is find a reason for the sea to come in. Mm. And that's when things get hilarious, like avalanche shark, sand shark, (laughs) ghost shark, sharks in Venice, sharks in the swamp. (laughs) Everything you've got to do so that there's a reason for you to have to interact with the creature, which you don't actually have to interact with at all. Um, And it's, it's... It's seen in Sharknado because mm-hmm. then you have the tornadoes coming in and the sharks bubbling up through absolutely everything. And one of the um, movies I saw very recently that I thought was great was Planet of the Sharks, <laughs> <laughs> which basically goes, hey, guys, um, what about if we get, like, Waterworld and mix it with sort of dangerous sharks and thanks to climate change, we can't escape the sharks because we live on floating, like, cities and towns in the water. And they can now also jump out and grab us as we're walking along walkways. But I love that they genuinely, there was some really terrible science, but at least an attempt to qualify why we'd have to be in the water all the time. Uh, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point. And it's really striking that the, the kind of earth text of these... Uh, which is Jaws, the reason is one of capitalist motivation, right? You need you need the tour. Of course, there's a kind of personal phenomenological pleasure of, of swimming. And it is, it is. It's one of, one of my favorite things to do. But also, it's also really good for business. So if you can get people back into the water, the summer season is going to be saved and we don't have to confront the fact that this this like naked cash grab is also going to leave people without any legs. You know, we don't need to kind of really reckon with that. So I think it's really interesting that this, this idea of the hook of like, how do you, how do you either kind of push humans out into a space, which is not kind of safe or under their control, or how do you make it so that there is no space for them to exist in except that space, which is also inhabited by these kind of monsterized figures. Well, the what you said about um, capitalism as well, it comes in um, multiple times. So if you, you look at something like Deep Blue Sea, mm. it's meant to be trying to find a cure for a human disease, but arguably it's also about Big Pharma. And there is that financial benefit there. Um, at the beginning of Sharknado, it's about killing sharks for shark fin soup Mm. um and about how we are using the natural world and there's a sense of almost revenge the thing about jaws is at that point humans are really depicted as quite innocent the people on the beach are innocent when they're being killed yeah 
uh, 1970s skinny day and that is then destroyed you know this innocence is destroyed this joy of the summer holidays is destroyed mm. by a shark and that is why then the shark is bad and we can defend our right to destroy it I'm now thinking about sharks in a whole new way. <laughs> right, yeah. What, what, what does this do to our reading of Street Sharks, the animated series? <laughs> I mean, or Sharky and George, the detectives of the sea. <laughs> yes. Which or, um, I, I actually think is probably uh, uh, somehow commenting on the fact that sharks are very important in the ecosystem and the fact that they eat a lot of detritus and sort of clean up the sea, just like Sharky and George clean up the streets of the sea. That's definitely the the uh, underlying message <laughs> in that particular animated uh, TV program. Yeah, and that, that reading also fully applicable to Jabberjaw. So I think I think you're definitely onto something there. Absolutely. Um, the thing about Jaws that really got me is, like I said, I saw it far too young. Um, I think I must have been about seven, six or seven. And I was considering in my mind, I've been sort of worrying, like, I don't want to give the suggestion that if you watch a load of movies about sharks, you're going to end up not, being able to rationalize your fear of sharks and i think really reductive way of reading uh, the idea that if i read something and i can't coalesce it in my mind but i was thinking that one of the things that did strike me is when i was six or seven i was a british kid who went sometimes swimming off the british isles where as far as i'm aware um, despite what they're saying in various Cornish newspapers, there are no great white sharks or large <laughs> man-eating sharks. Uh, and so my first introduction to this creature was through Jaws. So at that point, I didn't have anything quite making me question that. And it took my own sort of sudden realisation that this fear was... I mean, my, I'm genuinely very scared of sharks and I will get panicky when I get into the sea that I'm, I'll suddenly get in my head there might be a shark near me I can do it in swimming pools and so I kind of wanted to challenge this um, and start thinking you know, actually I'm more likely to be killed by a cow because cows are really <laughs> dangerous they'll, they'll stampede you um, but yeah I do think if you look at the knock-on effect of Jaws it seems more it seems that with an animal that you're not going to engage with regularly, you're going to see a bigger impact. And, and Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel that the movie is based on, he was just really upset at the effect that the film had on shark populations mm. um, and ended up being a conservationist for sharks because of it. I think, I think there's something really interesting about what you're saying, which kind of depends upon this uh, tension between the shark as the kind of villain and also the shark as... Uh, you said that the shark is basically innocent in Jaws, uh, rather that the sharks are basically, like, we have a tendency to kind of project moral attributes onto the natural world, which the natural world doesn't necessarily care anything for. So it becomes very easy to to to, to demonise and to, and to make these these... Uh, creatures, uh, as you say, make them into kind of easy targets and, and it's right for us to inflict a kind of violence upon them. Um, and I think that's really interesting that the, even the author of the novel ended up as a conservationist to try and undo some of that gothicizing discourse. 
Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the physicality of a shark. I mean, they're fish, so they're very different. Like, <laughs> they're not mammals. They're completely different to us. Um, there's no real interface for us. I mean, to connect with, you look at a shark and they talk, I mean, again, in Jules, it, they talk about the cold, dead eyes of a shark and that their eyes retract backwards as, they, as they're going to go in to bite. They don't have hands, so as far as we know, their bite is their main way of understanding what something is. Mm. Um, and even their skin, it's it's grey or whitish, um, and it's it's in, almost impenetrable. Um, you know, if you get scraped by a shark, you, your skin is going to get scraped as well. But yeah, that that idea that because they are so implacable in their appearance, mm. we can just simply project what we want. And you're right, time and time again, in narratives regarding animals, it's always the animal is vindictive, it's evil. It's never just an animal living its life to the, to the capabilities that it has. Uh, you need to have that human sense of evil to justify its destruction and death. Mm. I, really, I really like that, that, that comment you just made, because one of my... Like favorite is a weird way to phrase this, but one of the scenes I find most interesting in Jaws is when the the hunting parties start arriving, and it's just like everybody from people with fishing boats to like guys in like a little raft with dynamite, and it's just kind of like everybody coming out of the woodwork to try and win the prize and kill the monster shark. And I find that so interesting because like that that's not that scene wasn't fiction, right? That happens. Mm -hmm recurringly in Amer American history specifically, there are so many instances of like, you know, like a, a couple dogs will die in a town because of some animal uh, attack or fight or something. And mm -hmm. then like, it, it'll, it'll go from like, uh, you know, like a couple dogs are dead to like, we have like, like the, the horror beast has arrived. We have to defeat it. And then like hunters will start showing up. And like, there, there've been a couple instances where like, it's really just been a few pets that have shown up dead and, you know, maybe they were killed by a raccoon or something, but like towns are just flooded with hundreds of hunters and they're shooting everything that moves and it becomes this huge, like chaotic, but also economically viable for local business opportunity. And that's like that tension I find to be so interesting that we're willing to monsterize and kind of create these, these like, like flatly false nightmares so we can, have these like what are effectively performative exercises of mastery of nature. Mm. I completely agree. And um, it, it's hard. Yeah. I don't know if you like, cause obviously we've got someone from, well, we've got two people from the British Isles and someone <laughs> from North America, the British Isles. We don't have that many scary things. So, <laughs> And, and uh, I'm sure you'll get a lot of tweets when I say this, but um, our big thing that we hunt is, of course, foxes. Mm. And I remember meeting a guy from America who'd heard all about fox hunting and happened to see a fox for his the first time ever. He was in a state that didn't have foxes and saw them in the British Isles and went, that's what you're having the argument over. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> read about how people depict foxes they're violent they're cruel have you ever seen how they kill chickens and i'm like i mean if we're going on who kills the most chickens i'd be hunting right. humans like yeah. it's not like we're nice to chickens either 
Um, but there are chickens, so I guess that's what we're really upset about here. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can I can kill and torture my own chickens, but that fox comes in and they deserve to die. And I I mean that need to hype up the enemy if it's an animal is partly I think because then if you kill it, it just makes you even better. You know, if if this is a hyper intelligent, hyper violent, hyper evil animal then when you kill it, you're the super bestest hunter in all the world. I should yeah. say I'm not, I don't hunt. You might have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I actually I think, I think fox hunting really underscores what you're talking about here, right? Because fox hunting is not, uh, is definitely and, and has always been the preserve of like landed gentry of like mm-hmm. the, the the old british bourgeois right that's that's you get on your fancy coat and all of your mates get their fancy clothes on and you gather up your fancy specially bred hunting dogs and you put on a show so it isn't this this idea of it being a, a kind of like titanic struggle against of man versus nature is only partly true because it's also an expression of a certain kind of class power right a certain kind of ability to dominate Absolutely. And I I think so with I mean I'm I'm also a wolfy person through the werewolves. One of the things I find very interesting is that relationship between land ownership and how many wolves you kill. So early mm. on in the British Isles, um, when England was um basically uh, taking over Wales, um one of the things that they said was the Welsh could pay a tithe almost in bits of wolf and then if you look at say then oliver cromwell's time in ireland he's taking over uh, wolfhounds to kill wolves and there's that paralleling them and again you go to north america and the destruction of the wolf population as well as the destruction of the uh, indigenous population um and this this need that you can control the 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 wild the wilderness space as long as you can control the next biggest predator um and to bring it back to sharks if we really want to think about ideas of wilderness if wilderness exists and so forth the sea would be a perfect example we know so little about the sea and we have no control over the sea mm. nor its inhabitants Mm, yeah that's that's a really that's a really really good point actually this idea of the sea as wilderness is not something i thought about before yeah i really like that and i really like that because a lot of the it is scary i mean yeah and a a lot of the um shark 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 fiction shark narratives a lot a lot of our narratological exposure to the shark comes from you know Either either American cinema or like things that have been seeded creatively by Jaws, an American film, and like now now that you mention like the ocean as a frontier of wilderness, like I'm making like the really obvious connection between like the American literary tradition of like how we how we treat the woods, you know that dark foreboding thing uh, where the devil lives, mm-hmm. and the the direct overlap with with like the kind of satanic qualities attributed to Jaws as a being. Mm. So yeah, absolutely brilliant. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, this idea I mean, that wild the wilderness spaces are 
spaces that kind of people are supposed to go out into and, and dominate, which is, of course, tied up in kind of the old legacies of colonialism and so on. But the sea always remains kind of out of reach, you know, because it's such a place that is uh, like almost antithetical to the kind of life that we live. And you think about, um, again, in, in Jaws, it, a lot of ideas about shark attacks and violence, um, they become more prevalent when you start going into the sea. And one of the reasons we spend time in the sea is for martial reasons, when we're having wars. Mm. And it's one of the key narratives of shark attacks is the um, USS Indianapolis and you know we've got these brave soldiers and they might be going off to kill nazis but they can't kill sharks by the way there is however a nazi shark film on on amazon prime it it's a spoof i'll tell you that but again that idea that you know um violence and guns and things like this they're not the, the way that we would fight on land, we can't fight sharks in the same way. Um, and, and then you get to that point, we're going to need a bigger boat. We, there's, <laughs> we need something bigger. We need to have greater manpower and firepower to overcome this creature in this, in this space that is, as was said, an, an antithesis to what we're used to and how we live. Mm, yeah, definitely. And and so not only does it kind of take you to the boundaries of life, it takes you to the boundaries of like what's thinkable, right? Because if the shark is an enemy, it's not an enemy in the same context of like a human enemy that you could, as you say, as you could wage war on. This is this is a, a life that is like almost completely other with the capital O. And so it becomes something that is, um, you know, it's almost impossible to think um, Mark Fisher, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to talk about Mark Fisher. <laughs> every Go episode of the, every episode of the show, I've talked about Mark Fisher. So Mark Fisher talks about the the idea of trying to think the outside, like trying to think the outside or trying to think out of the current kind of capitalist realist world in which we live. And he says that it's like it's almost impossible. But in these creatures, which are so far distinct from anything that we might norm normatively approach as kind of life you see the kind of beginnings of an outside um we talked about this a little bit with in our episode on the magnific with the magnificast talking about um the vampire squid uh which is maybe one of our most uh weird episodes highly underrated um, highly underrated please please re listen to our, our collab with the magnificast it was a lot of fun <laughs> but these these kind of limit environments these environments which are kind of right on the edge of where we can go and what we can experience do do possibly represent a kind of thinkable outside i mean i'm I both want to answer that and also point out that you talked about someone called Fisher, which is a good <laughs> one. So, um, yeah, that, again, like, as you're saying, the other with a capital O, um, mm. non-human animals, uh, and the further you get, you know, away from mammals and into fish and things like that, um, it's... There's, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm thinking, I can't conceptualize 
um, an interiority to a shark. Well, I mean, beyond cutting it up, all I can think of, it's a thing, it lives in a sea, it eats. And beyond that, I know also they, they some sharks do kill each other in the womb, um, which itself has been interpreted in various ways. Um, but yeah, it's they're too far away from me. They're too far removed. Um, and in that, they are a perfect eco-Gothic vehicle because they are, as far as we can feel as humans, the other with a capital O. Um, and therefore, they challenge everything that we understand. And and so we might want to create a narrative that even then we can kill them. But if we actually got down to it, the reason we want to kill them is because we don't understand them at all. And we don't know even how to begin to understand them or the world in which they inhabit. Mm, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I, yeah I'm, re- I'm really happy that you brought up trying to envision the interiority of the shark. Because like, if you look at kind of the history of you know, like trying trying to form philosophical standpoints from the perspective of the natural world, right? Unless you, you get into like, you know, more modern kind of like speculative realist weirdness where you're trying to like think from the perspective of a fungus, you're, you're either like in this like Descartes mode where like the natural world is this purely mechanistic thing that has no agency and therefore humanity is kind of free to do to it as we wish because it's not really different from like your cart that's outside or or a fork or something it's just this mechanical thing that exists or you've got like this this weird impulse to attribute human qualities right to anthropomorphize the natural and so like you start talking about sharks as being human in a way but always always in a way that's very convenient for whatever we're currently doing so the sharks are evil or they're murderous or they're hungry or something things Mm -hmm. that like maybe maybe the shark has no conception of these things and therefore like to call the shark evil is purely (laughs) self-serving i completely agree um and I think in Jaws, I mean, there is that scene where they, you know, they're cutting open a shark to see mm-hmm. if it is the right shark. Is it the correct shark? And the only way you can see is if it's dead and you can cut it open and look inside it at what it's been eating. It's defined by what it has been mm-hmm. eating. It literally is what it eats. And if it eats humans, then it's a problem. And if mm. it's or, you know, the other thing, um, I mean, the idea that it's it's preying on fish that we might want to prey on as mm-hmm. long as it's eating the right thing it's fine um but it is um, and then in fact multiple times in the sharknado series and certainly at the end of the first one people go inside the shark and cut <laughs> themselves out they're literally yep. in the belly of the shark the belly of the beast like ripping themselves out um i think the end of the first sharknado film is just one of the most most literal interpretations of Slotkin's work, regeneration through violence. Like, mm. literally, <laughs> he's so violent. He's bombed a hurricane and a tornado. Why not? And then sliced open a shark to be reborn, covered in blood, into a world where he's got his wife back and he's the perfect family man with two kids. And he's a survivor. Um, I... I- 
I can't believe that you've done this to me, but now I'm thinking about the very first Sharknado film as a searing critique of American bourgeois masculinity. <laughs> uh, and Accurate. and the the violence that underpins the kind of day-to-day existence of what we take to be kind of the good life you know we that that, i mean i can't believe that we've managed to do this we've turned we've turned the first sharknado into a virulently (laughs) anti-capitalist anti-class system film (laughs) i I think that works really Well, well too yeah, I mean, I mean, this is kind of what I do, um, <laughs> mainly as a thought exercise sometimes. But the thing, like, that intrigued me as well about Sharknado is it, it's a mixture of so many genres. So yeah, it's it's got the you know the um, it's it's based on Jaws. It's just a follow up ultimately to to Jaws, but it's it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more insane. Um, but it's also really got that idea of the frontier because. It's California. It's the limits of as far as you can go in terms of expanding west. And finally, it's also got that 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 vulnerability almost of the the American dream in that it draws upon a lot of disaster movies based in and around LA. Um and I think it it obviously I mean, it's it's big let down is that it's it's Sharknado and Asylum Productions. I don't think are doing it for the parodic effect. I don't think they're sitting there going, how can we satirize the more problematic elements of these genres? Um, but if you actually see the fact that they're all so mushed together, it's this Frankenstein-esque stitched together narrative um, that just draws attention to the fault lines of what it's on one hand celebrating and on one hand accidentally critiquing. And yeah, in a way, I, sorry, Ash, go on. Oh, I was just gonna say, I really like that reading because our current cultural moment, both here in, in the United States and Canada and the United Kingdom, you know, we're we're witnessing kind of like the collapse of the potential for parody. You know, we have like like Donald Donald Trump is is the best possible example of this. He is notoriously afraid of sharks, and there there have been like so many stories that have come out now where he's just like gone on unhinged rants about how he needs to destroy sharks. What was it like mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about how he was going to start bombing and nuking hurricanes? And like, like that. This is is this not the plot of Sharknado? <laughs> that is the president of the United States, and in, in like in the worst way possible, right? So that this potential space of parody has collapsed into reality, and we are very much living in a world that is a less CG reboot of Sharknado. No, completely. I mean. Uh, Jameson was talking about this back in the 70s and 80s, right? That the the era of depth metaphor is 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 coming to an end, which was the era of kind of things like psychoanalysis and Marxism as as kind of grand narratives that could give a uh, a reading, could decode the world. But now everything is just everything is just surface. We live in Sharknado. We live in the Sharknado <laughs> timeline. Donald Trump wants to attack sharks and, and nuke hurricanes. There is nothing to interpret there. And one of the great things about horror as a kind of diagnostic tool is in its it's the, the kind of Frankensteinian stitching together of our social totality. It reveals all of the kind of ideological fault lines that run through it. 
I think like, oh man, to, to build off of that really quick with one more thing, I think uh, so something about <laughs> that is really interesting is like, we, we, the reality that we live in is so close to the reality in Sharknado, except for like the one, the one factor that I would, that I would highlight as the, the true distinction here is that in Sharknado and in a lot of these like hyper absurdist kind of like parodic movies, especially asylum cinema, the, the difference is, is that like Sharknado has a bit of a clear moral universe, right? Like the Sharknado as an entity is, is it's, it's like a volcano exploding or something. It's this horrific and absurd natural disaster. And like, it reduces the complexity of the moral landscape to like, okay, how do we, how do we survive a tornado that's somehow magically full of sharks when our reality uh, does not have <laughs> something to level the moral playing field like that? I'd agree, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we end up um, having situations where you know it's being reported that the president of the united states of america is suggesting bombing hurricanes um or you know saying we need to kill all the sharks and then we'll be safe because we are searching for that underpinning it's one of the reasons why i think people really like um stories where the shark is evil because it's a mm -hmm. lot easier that the shark is evil than to have to be in this moral ambiguity where I can't make any discerning statements like that because the shark is a shark and mm -hmm. that's all yeah. we have. Um, and I, I mean, also, let's be honest, I think because we like... We like the idea that we have that moral high ground and I think we mm -hmm. also really like an excuse to literally get out the big guns yeah. and watch huge explosions. <laughs> yeah. no, um, very true. Very true. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, it's a way to sublimate our current, you know, our, our real problems and our real fears. Like we have, you know, our, you know, on a, in a very real scale, like all, all of our governments are facing like incredible internal catastrophes that are very destabilizing, mm. you know, kind of like, regardless what country you're in right now, the, the impact of that is palpable. Not, not to mention like the severe environmental crises that are uh, unfolding currently in a lot of places, whether, whether you're in the developing world or you're in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Like this yeah. last year has just been environmentally disastrous. And there, there is a desire in these shark movies and indeed in a lot of cinema to, to kind of like, have have a very simple baddie that we just need to like you know be able to blow up a little bit harder than we did in the past because that's an easy thing to deal with and we can like if we have killer sharks or like the faceless bug men that appear in like every other marvel movie and like just an enemy that is a, a soulless machine of destruction that we just need to obliterate with a giant cannon then we like okay we can deal with environmentalism tomorrow we can deal with the collapse of government tomorrow because today we have like a shark that's an octopus fighting a shark that's a crocodile and that is a pressing issue. <laughs> it's also how sort of the language of Sharknado has <laughs> bled into our news reporting. 
So quite a few times I'm seeing anything involving weird shark behavior or sharks appearing where they shouldn't mm-hmm. as being reported as Sharknado, where they clearly aren't. So um, there was a uh, case where numbers of sharks were beaching themselves in North Carolina and it says real life Sharknado. And you're like, that's not real life Sharknado. When sea creatures start beaching themselves, it's usually a sign that something catastrophic is happening to them and mm-hmm. to their, the world in which they live, into the seas. But by framing it by Sharknado, it gives us space so we don't actually have to think about that real eco-catastrophe. Mm. Similarly, there was um, an image during a cyclone in, in Australia where it said, you know, it's so powerful, um, there's a bull shark now in the middle of the road, and it was mm-hmm. actual Sharknado. But the thing about this is that was a dead shark. It died. Yeah. It was also damaged by this catastrophe. So just as we're uncomfortable with the cyclone bringing in the sea and breaking down our habitat, their habitat's being broken down. And it was something really upsetting and pathetic in the truest sense of the world, that you have this animal that in its own habitat is strong and successful, and there it is just dead in a road and we're labeling it by a terrible movie title. Yeah. I think, I think you, you're, you're making this a really sort of challenging point for a lot of people, which is that a lot of this discourse rests upon a division between us and the natural world, right? We think of ourselves as separate and distinct from the natural, from the natural world. That's why we talk about things like natural disasters, because we think, oh, the world is basically the giant machine that is designed for our use. And so when something uh, terrible happens, something has gone wrong in the machine and it's the fault of who knows what. Whereas actually the thing like that, that very famous image that you were talking about, the thing that that kind of forcibly brings home is the extent to which that division between us and the natural world is incredibly damaging because it allows us to obfuscate and 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 sublimate our responsibility and our kind of ontological indebtedness to the natural world um which is really dangerous because it means all of the all of the natural disasters which are almost certainly caused at some level by human involvement by um the 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 kind of climate apocalypse that we are currently wreaking upon the upon the planet we don't we don't confront that in this sort of discourse we allow ourselves the escape by going ah well it's not us it's the natural world it's the world that's over there that's full of these monsters that it, it is on occasion morally justified for us to inflict great violence upon so i think i think maybe that's why we enjoy these films because there's a bit of it which kind of continues that division instead of kind of underscoring the extent to which we are the horror comes from realizing that we're enmeshed in the natural world that we are entangled in it the same world that we inhabit is the same world of of the 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 great white and the vampire squid and now completely i mean i absolutely uh, agree and I think for me, this is why I'm so interested in these sorts of narratives. Um, and there was a um, there was a poster I saw once, um, and it was of a forest, and it sort of to me encapsulated 
the the tensions around eco-gothic and eco-horror narratives where it's, it's a picture of a forest and it goes going to the wilderness you'll you know you'll find yourself and someone's crossed it out and written you'll probably die <laughs> <laughs> and it, i mean coming back to the, the really roots of horror and gothic there is that thrill of mm-hmm. the terror um and there is that i've never seen this big like for me certainly with with sharks i've never seen a great white shark and i will probably never see one unless i get go diving with them which i don't think i can bring myself to do (laughs) um so it's the only way i even get to see it and if it is bigger and it's scarier and it's more violent then it's more exciting as well as Mm. more scary um and I, yeah, for me, it's it's such a difficult one because there is that pleasure and there's also that absolute abhorrence and fear when I'm watching it, and they're completely close together. Mm. I really like how you phrased that that, that that watching these animals is is simultaneously like ab- abhorrent and there's a revulsion underneath it, but it's also greatly pleasurable because it makes me think of like. Um, when the BBC nature specials turn to like predator animals, right? Their their narrative shift completely, right? Because if it's like an antelope, right? It's it's this majestic, innocent creature that's that's frolicking and, and galloping through the fields. But then, like you know, when we when we cut to the lions or the sharks or the snakes, right? It's like the precision mind of the hunter. It's stalking its prey. It becomes a lot a lot darker, a lot more vicious, right? You know, like, and especially like I'm thinking about like all the great white documentaries I've ever watched where it's like, you know, like the the seals are, are just kind of like out and about. They're being little ocean puppies frolicking and having fun. And then like <laughs> the horrifying, hideous great white shows up and just starts indiscriminately killing. And it's just like we are clearly applying a, a layer of anthropological reasoning to this that is not applicable in the situation and that even mm-hmm. extends to jaws itself right you know like assuming everything in jaws is realistic which is a big leap right like that shark is just a hungry animal and the person is just a thing that really sucks at escaping a shark you know like jaws didn't go to the beach and then go like hmm yes i probably shouldn't eat that beachgoer that would be quite rude i'm going to go off and find a seal this day like jaws is just a hungry animal and it's just effectively someone who went out to get lunch one day and then all of a sudden these alien monsters are trying to kill it for like a few weeks straight yeah well, I read some very like interesting stuff. Like one of the articles I read about was about how that background music, whether it's in a documentary or whether it's about <laughs> in Jaws, um, completely affects the framing. Uh, the other thing that it reminds me of was um, an article I read that was um, talking about the idea of the shot of the shark killing and eating is a bit like the money shot in pornography. <laughs> That's what we're building up to. So we don't really think we want to see it, but we do. We want to see something being killed. We, You know, it is, it's an almost cathartic release. And with sharks, you know, we want to tell ourselves that they're de- demythologizing when they're doing the nature documentaries, that we're actually learning something, that we're challenging what we've seen in um, the, the, 
you know, in the films. But what we really want to see is them hunting and killing, whereas the vast majority of their life, they aren't actually eating a huge amount. They don't Mm. need to eat three meals a day like we do. So even those nature documentaries are like 75% a shark killing and eating, where in reality, about 75% of their life is them just swimming about. And we don't know what they're doing when they're just swimming about. Yeah, there's this... We, I, I think that that's a really interesting point, the way that you say that we think that we're learning something, but really we're just kind of continuing our uh, horrific fascination. Um, and I don't know, what would it what would it look like to have a relationship with not just sharks, but with the natural world where we kind of moved beyond just the perpetuation of our of our horrified attraction um i don't know i don't know if we have a good answer to that yet i don't think we have and i think that's where we're sort of in a this is where i find myself in a cul-de-sac when i'm trying to think about these things because i'm constantly torn between um i tom tyler writes about sort of uh, anthropomorphism and and i when i read his work i sort of thought of it as good versus bad anthropomorphism mm. uh, there's the anthropomorphism that completely denies um the the animal anything other than an extension of my own ego and it's just being used to teach me about myself and humans about themselves um you know sort of like the big bad wolf in charles perrault's little red riding hood um but then there's also the problem that if this is the only tool set i have um to what extent is it also just an attempt at empathy that i might do with any other person human person that i was meeting um and this is where I keep continually finding myself just going round in circles because I am limited by my own existence. Mm. I, so I really like this kind of discursive line, right? Because like all, 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 all kind of like all of our societal like oppressions are linked, uh, you know, together, right? Like all of these systems are co-constitutive and interwoven and you can go back to like, recluse commenting that the way we treat nature is a reflection of the way we treat each other right mm-hmm. and like you know that this is a little bit silly of a phrasing but like you know a, a world wherein we have kind of like an earnest and understanding relationship with jaws and they're not like treated as these kind of like you know kind of like grand guignol pornographic like monstrosities to kind of like shock the crowd is a mm. world where we can build restorative justice, not only towards nature, but also towards each other, right? Because if we're, you know, the the viewpoint from which we look at the shark is one of, like, maximal exploitation. The shark as a, as a thing in and of itself does not exist. The shark, from the human perspective, exists as this, this neurotological device, this vehicle for shock and for terror, whether it's in Jaws or, like it's a metaphor in the newspaper or it's a documentary about nature that's ostensibly trying to be educational. The language thing, I think what you said about like uh, metaphor um, and how we use terms like, so sharking is the one I've heard, like you go out sharking. So you're basically on the pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a series of adverts um, on the Metro in Paris um, that I was 
sent um, by another academic, and it was trying to stop um, sexual harassment. And I got so annoyed by these posters because they had a woman um, holding on to the pole in the metro. But what they'd done is superimposed her either under the sea and there's a great white shark in the background or in a forest and there's three wolves. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. And there's a bear. And I was like, I'm not being funny. I've never been sexually harassed by a shark, a bear Mm. or... (laughs) by a wolf okay i'll be really honest with you um and the metro is not a forest and it is not um you know it's not an ocean and the other thing is an animal that's you know a non-human animal that's not how they work or function right that's that's a peculiar human thing so i'm like you're letting off the people who are doing this and Mm -hmm. at the same time you're demonizing the animal and we do that so much within our narratives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A a pack of wolves stalking their prey is like, that's a perfectly natural function of wolves that doesn't, you know, comport to human morality. And like, God, you're, you're so right. Like I really like, cause you see that, like that, that language too, you see that used a lot and it's just absolutely like filleting that kind of like, masculinist ego to to be like oh well these you know like if if if, because what is that saying if not like if you're a sexual harasser you are as powerful as the great white and alpha pack of wolves or the mighty bear you know like ah that's fucked (laughs) and it's also saying it's also saying that these it perpetuates those stereotypes of those animals being hugely dangerous and it completely frees up sexual harassers from any responsibility because at the same time you go well they're dangerous and they're predatory but they're also animals so what do you expect so it's it's bad in just so many ways oh yeah i completely agree i've i've like i keep seeing uh, and again when i was looking more at the werewolf work i kept seeing these similarities and you have these um use of imagery uh, and, and, and metaphor that ultimately is denigrating humans and non-human animals at the same time. Um, thinking about, you know, um, Bradford when he's talking about the, the Plymouth plantation and he's talking about wild beasts. And we know that what he means is wolves. And one of the earliest laws brought in in um, the American colonies was about controlling wolf populations. But he also means the indigenous population. And by using that, you've again, you've managed to manage to make a basis for destroying both groups. Mm. whether human or non-human animal and it's such an unfair comparison and trying to unpick it from one point of view rather you know looking at it from post-colonial point of view or looking at it from an animal studies point of view misses the point that it's a complex structure that's designed to allow whoever the oppressor is to oppress everyone they want by just making these coherent groups of you deserve to die yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Now, the other thing I did, so we I feel like Jaws uh, is is the thing that, uh, you know, it's 
you see like Jaws, a bit like Sharknado, you've got the, the male hunter, so the male human hunter uh, versus, I'm assuming all the sharks in Sharknado are male. They don't do anything to disprove that. Um, but you also see, and I keep noticing this, in quite a lot of these films, women have a really major role. Uh, in Deep Blue Sea, um, <laughs> you've got a female scientist. And I love it because it's got that sort of, because it is it is a Frankenstein narrative, mm. you've kind of got rid of um, Baron Frankenstein and replaced it with Mary Shelley almost popping in there and and working on the sharks and make them hyper intelligent. What is it that you think? What? Yeah. Why is that something that happens? Why is there this this trope of of the 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 female scientist or the female expert on sharks? Where does this come from? What do you think it kind of speaks to? Well, my theory, and it is still a working theory, is that if we do a very simple, you know, we tend to think of things as binary. You typically mm. put femininity over with non-human animals, the uncontrolled. You also put it alongside empathy. And the idea of having a female shark expert or the female shark scientist is perhaps suggesting that, you know, as a woman, you're more likely to be more empathetic to, you know, you're not coming in as the hunter, that's the male role. We are coming in as an empathetic figure. Uh, and certainly in Deep Blue Sea, she's made them in many ways there's almost like a maternal role there as well and so when they then get out of hand and have to be destroyed it's like a reminder to say you can't empathize with these creatures you just have to we we cannot ever have a reasonable relationship with them we must ultimately always be fighting them and then mm. you get the male hunter coming in and going all right well you tried ladies i'm gonna have to kill the animal Mm, yeah that's really interesting and i think uh as far as working theories go that sounds very convincing to me again this is one of my i i it's one of my weird skills so i'm, I'm quite good at thinking up uh working theories and i and i really do i think the other thing that i found interesting about deep blue sea is when we were talking about can you give human traits to animals? Well, if you're the one who's engineered them to have a human-like mm. intelligence, mm, yes. then you can defend your anthropomorphizing of them because you have, in fact, got them beyond the concept of sagacity, which you know typically is related to animal cunning and intelligence, to a human-like intelligence. Yeah. So they're a worthy, they're a worthy sort of uh, enemy in that capacity. Ooh, yeah. Ash, what did you think? That's good. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of lost in thought. There's a lot of, like, good points coming up here. I definitely think that, you know, one of the interesting things about Deep Blue Sea is kind of how it lets off humanity in a certain way. Because what, is, what does the shark do once it becomes human on a certain level, once it gains human intelligence, right? It it goes out for revenge, right? It goes out for blood, you know? It's it's effectively doing what the humans did in Jaws, but in, in verse. And I think, um, so So, a question for you, Kaya. As far as the relationship with these female scientists go, like, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of, if not all, of these monster sharks are coded as being male. 
through through if nothing more than the kind of like discursive framework around them as kind of like apex alpha super predators tactical gear (laughs) so i I was wondering like one thing that kind of popped in my mind while you were talking is there is kind of like this tradition in literature and folklore of like the the innocent woman taming the wild and virulent man you know and, and taking him from a place of of kind of like wilderness or something like that into, I don't know, something more societally palatable. Do you think that that overlays at all onto the relationship that these kind of like uh, uh, women researchers in shark movies have with the like giant sharks? Oh, that's, oh, I've not thought about that. That's a really good point. Um, I should also say I have remembered that in Jaws two, the 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 shark is female in mm. Jaws two, and there is a suggestion that it is a, uh, an angry mum essentially coming yeah. because they capture one of her offspring. So I thought, so that no one's like, I think you'll find that there is in fact a female. That's definitely a female <laughs> shark there, um, but it doesn't give her any ultimate. They still kill her. Um, I haven't thought about whether it was taming the shark itself i do wonder whether though it is hmm. and i'm also thinking that quite often the female scientist ends up copping off with the male hunter in some nice equilibrium of oh it turns out you know you can still sort of get what you want but it's a male hunter as opposed to being able to control a shark um but yeah, what do you think? Because I don't think I've got major ideas, Rante. What do you think? Well, Ash, you know, this was this was your theory. You take it away. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I I think the the interaction is interesting, right? Because there's definitely that 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 tradition, right? That that a woman's presence can tame the beast. You know, like obviously Beauty and the Beast, The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, Mina Harker's relationship with Dracula, things like that. King like Kong. The, King Kong, King Kong. Yes. Like like this tradition exists. I'm not quite sure how how I would slot because the relationship is present in a lot of these shark films, right? Like you're absolutely right that there are a lot of women researchers next to giant often coded as being masculine super monsters. But I think an interesting twist here is that, like, sharks aren't often, like, King Kong is is kind of a complicated monster, if you will, right? Like, the the film allows him to have kind of a lot of empathetic qualities and a lot of a lot of sympathies are built with or between King Kong and the audience, right? You know, we see him as a monster, as as something kind kind of evil or whatever. But he's also clearly displaced. He's clearly also in his own agony. He's very similar to Frankenstein. But sharks really don't get that kind of moral leeway. Mm. Not at all. And it, it does, because as you're saying this, it does make me think like it is, it's almost like a frustrated aspect of the narrative, like a piece where we want to almost go there, but we just don't know how to. And the only time you actually really see a complicated idea um, of this is with uh, the creature from Black Lagoon and also uh, Shape of the Water, 
where you've got a humanoid fish person. And again, it's male, like they're a male fish person. And then the female empathy or, or the relationship potentially that could be sexual, quite explicitly sexual in the shape of the water is made more obvious and clear. But I do wonder whether it's just that in a lot of cases, it's that that narrative kind of needs a bit of sexual intrigue and perhaps Mm. we're demurring from possibly saying that there could be shark human relations. (laughs) I don't know if it's even biologically possible. Well, well, I think Gil- Gilmo del Toro, get on it, man. <laughs> yeah, come on. Shape of Water 2. Uh, let's make it happen. <laughs> Shape of Water 2, Jaws. <laughs> the water has never been hotter. Now, when Victor Crumb in Harry Potter, I'm Harry Potter nerd, turns himself into a shark like creature to rescue Hermione. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. There has got to be some slash fic out there. Oh, I hope so. I really do. So basically, basically what what we're saying is that um, sharks, like every other kind of gothic or horror monster, need their own sexy version. Like that's that's how we that's how we reformulate human animal relations. There has got to be a, a Chuck Tingle pounded in the butt by a shark, you know, like that has to exist. Well, I would say the main other thing, though, is if you're going to go for really uh, going there in terms of uh, ways of reading the shark, I've got to say you're going to go more vagina dentate than anywhere else. Ooh, maybe maybe that is the layer of complication that was missing from our, like, taming the wild shark discourse, is that there is kind of, like, sharks... Now that I think about it, I have kind of an ambiguous quality of gender to them, right? Like, as fish, they they lack any of the mammalian signifiers of gender that would usually be just kind of quickly tacked onto a monster to signal it one way or the other. And, like, what what is their one notable feature, if not, like, a giant gaping orifice that causes confusion and terror to men? I mean, there we are. I mean, that seems very believable. And until sharks do the decent thing and, you know, start wearing lipstick, uh, or <laughs> <laughs> they could just sort that out. It just makes everything so much easier. Um, but yeah, because if again, like think about like it's the it's the mouth that is it's it's the consumption and the being swallowed up and eaten alive, um, and usually from the bottom half of your body first. So I think there's a really convincing argument there about what, what sharks represent if it hasn't already been written. You know, now now that I'm thinking about this line, you can absolutely read Teeth as a shark movie. <gasps> you oh can absolutely read Teeth as a shark movie. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we, this is, this is, we, we just hit a gold mine here. <laughs> I think all three of us now have papers. Right, yeah, I was, I was gonna say this. This is like there are there's a dissertation in here for someone if they want to pick it up. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I I mean I get that we've been sort of like semi joking here, but I do think I think it's interesting that we've. I think the word you used was frustrated. There's a kind of frustration in trying to bridge that gap between those two very different modes of living which exist in the same kind of 
reality and there is we run into our own limits right we don't have gills we don't we don't we don't know what is it like for a shark to be a shark we don't have the kind of access to interior consciousness and so we'll always run up against the sheer kind of otherness of these creatures and with things other monsters so if you think about something like Frankenstein's monster or zombies or werewolves or vampires it's easy enough to see them as reflections of ourself um on a shark it's not it can't even be that um it, it, it can't even be defined in that capacity uh which makes it even further away from us um and I, I listened to an incredibly interesting uh, paper talking about the sea and Gothic. And one of the things it said is about when you actually just look at the sea and it's still, all you get is reflection. So you mm. have no perception of its depth. You just, I think this was actually at the, the IJA in Mexico, but you just get this this reflection and you don't know what's below it and below its surface. And I think in some ways a shark embodies that because it's not even reflecting us. It's just there. Um, and the only thing really, the only way that we can understand it is through the idea that it could consume us. And I think in how we comprehend it, that's also the truth. If I try to think too much about shark and sharkness and look at a shark, um, that actually process of trying to under understand it is is in some ways so intractable it almost destroys and consumes me itself. So the only way that I can have a narrative is where it literally does that to me. Oh, that's a really interesting idea. That's really interesting. That's very cool. Um, Ash, what do you think? I'm just trying to. My, my mind has been a bit blown. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think I was actually at the same panel at the IGA in Mexico. Well, we'll have to. We'll, we'll link to the IGA in the show notes so people know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I think something that that's kind of that I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation, right, is that like this is kind of like a decidedly. There's something uh, colonial about this attitude, right? That the sea is this unconquerable thing. Therefore, it must, our relationship to it must be one of like conqueror and conquered, right? One of us will wind up on top and the other will wind up destroyed. And that's kind of been the historic attitude that's that's emanated from European colonialism into American colonialism and Canadian, et cetera, and so forth. Mm. And I'm thinking like, and this is something that, that I don't know too much about. So it's just kind of like an open question, a question for the listeners. Is that like, you know, whether whether it's like Vikings or island civilization or something, but people who've had like culturally and historically uh, deeper relationships with the sea and not one of like it's kind of just the thing that we float our war machines on. But like like how how does that relationship function if not one that is similarly bound by like a, a perplexing fear Well, I, I think that's really interesting and I don't know if I don't know if I have a good answer to that, but I think one thing that's worth thinking about is the ways in which colonialism and, and imperialism and the, the project of capital capitalism and its empire is that it's an attempt to deny the basic contingency of human existence. Capitalism and imperialism it seeks to kind of instantiate a 
uh, itself as like a as like a force of nature, as like physics. You know, this is just the way that the world is and and always will be and always has to be. And any kind of genuinely radical systemic change is is either utopian or is just naive. And that means that the natural world, because of its because it is a, a model of of what Eugene Thacker calls the world without us, is is something that has to be dominated, that's something that has to be controlled. And even to go back to our earlier point about how we were saying, you know, when we use the posters on the metro using animals as a metaphor for humans, if therefore the only narratives you have with sharks is that they are aggressors, it also naturalizes the concept of hierarchy and competitiveness. Mm -hmm. It's saying the shark is playing along. We're all in the same system. And the shark wants to get out on top as much as we want to get out on top, which justifies this continuous struggle and this continuous fight for power and control. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's especially true, given the fact that so many of those narratives are just straight up human constructs and false you know, like the the idea of like the alpha wolf being the pack leader is is inaccurate. And um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the guy who came up with that theory would later go on to spend the rest of his career denouncing it because he had studied a captive population of wolves that weren't oh, an organic are we, pack. Are we talking about uh, Lucy and David Mack? Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah. But yeah, like like so. So the theory that kind of birthed the idea of the alpha wolf pack leader comes comes from uh, Lucian David Mech, mm-hmm. right? Who, uh, but he originally just studied a yeah. captive wolf population that was a bunch of disparate wolves from disparate groups, right? It was an artificial pack in an artificial setting. And that pack had, you know, people fighting for leadership. It had dominance, it had aggression. But then when he went and he studied organic populations of wolves out in the wild, they weren't organized that way. They were organized along family lines and, and based on age and personal relationships with each other. And but like, you know, family fun times wolf organizing isn't as catchy as bloodthirst alpha leader man. So so the guy kind of like shot himself in the foot with some really good branding right off the bat. And he's kind of spent the rest of his career (laughs) denouncing it. But like that framework, like we extend the alpha language into like everything, especially everything masculine from from that kind of like false standpoint. And honestly, I'm so glad you mentioned it because I was like, I shouldn't mention this because it's such my bugbear and I get really bloody angry <laughs> when people use that language because I'm like, yeah, you're going justif- to you're gonna use biological essentialism to justify the why you're being an absolute arse. And then you're going to say about how wolves behave, but you don't know how wolves behave because you're not a wolf biologist, so don't even start on me here. <laughs> and, and, and I do, I, I think this a lot, um, as certainly... I, I went to go and see um, Professor Alice Roberts speak and on her book, Tamed. And one of the very interesting points she made is she was like, I'm using this term because we have terms like domestication. But the reality is it's a two-way street. And she started talking about dogs. And she was she kept coming back to, if wolves were just vicious, violent creatures, we wouldn't have dogs. So at some point, 
we looked at wolves and they looked at us and went, it's not that much difference. And there might be some mutual benefit here. Yeah. And she even said, like, you look at wolf pups playing and it's like kids playing. So kids probably looked at wolf pups playing. were like, oh, they're sweet and fluffy. I like them. <laughs> and yeah. And, and I think that if you keep going back to this idea that it's about dominance, and I do wonder sometimes when I talk to people about their relationship with their dog, and there are some people who it is about dominance, and they want to tell you about how, you know, the dog listens to them because they're the leader of the pack. And I'm like, dude, I want to be your kid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's but why that... I have a cat, because <laughs> a cat is a cat. It's just a cat. Like, I, he lives in my house, and, and it's great. <laughs> Um, right. It's a f- fuzzy but, roommate. Yeah, he's like a fuzzy roommate. Um, we have great chats though, so that's really positive. <laughs> he's very talkative. Bit of a slacker on rent though. Yeah, hasn't done anything. Killed. He has. He's killed a few mice so far. Um, which, given that he has a bell on, I don't know how he's managed. <laughs> well, that's like hard <laughs> mode there, huh? Yeah. Um, I'm hoping he doesn't get any of the local squirrel population because we've got black squirrels in this area. And they're oh, quite wow. rare. Mm, yes, yeah. It's very, very cool. Um, they're quite rare. So I'm like, please don't do it, Louis. But that's interesting, isn't it? That like cats, uh, you can't you can't have that relationship because I think domestication uh, for the cat is just a very good deal. <laughs> and they go, well, it, when this stops being a good deal, we could just leave. Uh, that's the, that's always the attitude that my cat give, gives off. That, you know, if it stops working out for me, uh, I'll, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. Uh, I'll just move out, and you can find somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think again, it shows us how much you know, we we always want to we always want to come down to a very simple model of how mm. everything functions. And the reality is, we keep looking to the natural world to to confirm that for us, almost Mm -hmm. as though, well, we're like really complicated animals. So if you look at a simpler version of us, then we'll get down to the root, the essence of how we behave. But -hmm. the problem is every time we keep looking at simpler animals, and I'm using inverted commas here, all we find is they're way more complicated than we thought. And they're not, unless we really try hard, they're not necessarily conforming to our expectations. So then we have to tell stories about them. Yeah. Do you, do you want to know my favorite example of this in the animal kingdom? And I'm, this is like one of yeah. my hobby horses that I'm going to absolutely use this excuse to get on. It is uh, the humble North American beaver, right? Like the, the beaver as, as an animal, right, will build artificial structures, mm-hmm. destroy waterways, kill off everything inside of a floodplain just to make itself a happy little pond home. <laughs> right the the beaver is in, in that respect not functionally distinct from like s- somebody walking into a prairie and going like you know what if i paved this motherfucker i could have a house yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> and like like i i worked at a campsite for a while that um had a beaver population that was actively in the process of relocating the river that was going through it because they just kind of like decided that they wanted to live in this other part of the forest. 
and like we weren't we weren't gonna like mess with the beavers plans so we were like like constantly going like okay well we have to like move a cabin because in a couple of months it's going to be underwater because of these damn beavers <laughs> <laughs> i i mean i i just love that idea of the beavers being like we're, we're just going to do us and there's really not much you can do <laughs> yeah. and i also love because they're bringing beavers back to the british isles as well oh sweet. yeah well, and en- like enjoy your new lakes <laughs> Oh, oh, we will. We will. I mean, we don't have, I don't think we've got Great Lakes, really. I mean, I think you guys have the Great Lakes and we have quite large puddles. I mean, the the UK does have the greatest lake in terms of Loch Ness. Uh, It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Let's not lie. (laughs) Or at least the spooky, one of the spookiest lakes. (laughs) This is a good pause. I'm going to have to edit out later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I think I, think I lost you there. That was me going, uh, I want to do an I heard I want to do an entire and then end. Oh, I, w- I want to do an entire episode where we just let Ash talk about beavers. Uh, yes! I, well, I mean there is there is the movie Zombievers. If we ever want the excuse, I'm down. Um I've hundred percent watched that and would be there for it. The other thing I think is really interesting, of course I've seen Zombievers. Um, the other thing that I think would be interesting is comparing, or th- now that we've done the shark stuff, is going to the wonderful ambivalent area of crocodiles and alligators. Because they've got some very good ho- horror films as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. And, they, I mean, the one most recently, which sadly I haven't uh, been to see because I can't get anyone to come see it with me and I can't watch horror movies by myself, um, <laughs> is uh, the one with um, Kaya Skolodari, I think her name is. I know the, the new Kaya. Sam Raimi film, Crawl? Yes. Because of that, it's got, it's got the hurricane aspect coming in. Mm-hmm. Um and that's particularly pertinent and interesting as it appears that hurricanes getting worse and worse and worse and worse and so forth. Um, but it's got that hurricane aspect and mm. it's also got that, that liminal space of the swamplands and, you know, gators are very liminal creatures. You know, they're not called amphibians, but they basically live an amphibious lifestyle in many ways. Yeah, uh, definitely. So, yeah, I've got to say, I feel like they deserve their own separate section there. But I could just continue to do a series about monstrous animals quite happily. Yeah, but that it, would be amazing. Please do. <laughs> that, that, that could be my podcast that I now start. Um, out of interest, what what are your favorite shark horror films? Oh, Ash, you're going to have the better oh, answers Jesus here than me. Christ. Um <sighs> So I mean, like maybe controversial, but I kind of don't like Jaws, but not not from not from a, a standpoint of the film as an art object, right? Like you know, Spielberg is brilliant. The score is brilliant. The the camera usage is brilliant, right? Like I just maybe maybe I'm too culturally inundated with Jaws stuff. Maybe that by the time I was exposed to Jaws, I was like, oh, this is this is where all of those jokes come from. This is where all those references come from. So it kind of this washed is, over this me. This is this is where the memes are from. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's, uh, you know, it's not that I dislike the film, but like it, it didn't have that. It didn't impact me in the way I think it impacts a lot of people. Um, my oh, gee, my favorite shark movies. I am a sucker for the um, Asylum shark movies and all of the ones that are kind of like made for TV sci fi films. 
all, all of your like your shark to puss, your robot sharks, your sharks <laughs> from outer space. There's that independent movie House Shark, where the shark yep. it's like a shark that's also a haunting. And what, and it wait, is just, wait what? <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 basic premise is is that like it's Jaws but set inside a house, and okay. it's a shark that that is only found naturally occurring inside of people's homes. And it's right. kind of like if you imagine a shark movie playing out like a haunting film. <laughs> that sounds amazing. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty good. But then like, uh, yeah, I just love all the all of the like avalanche shark, swamp shark, sand shark, all of those ridiculous like I really like camp in my shark movies. Uh, can you give us some more recommendations? Well, for me, I have to, I really quite enjoyed The Shallows mm. because I mean, it, it is because it was because it had a female character. It was a bit of a, uh, you know, a change uh, from your classic male hunter versus male animal. Uh, but I also really liked that she was quite ingenious. So I thought that was quite fun. But in terms of genuinely scary, I would say The Reef. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I genuinely found that really upsetting but it is the perfect example of what i was talking about earlier that idea that you're just you're looking at this surface and you simply can't see what's underneath and they're having to they've got like goggles so one of them can keep looking underneath to look out for the shark and it also shows you how impotent they are because yeah the shark appears and you're like well what can you do it's huge and it's based on a true story and what interests me quite a lot is that actually in the the version of the survivor of that boat capsizing, um, she says she thought it was actually a tiger shark. But in the film, they change it to a great white shark. And I think it's because of the fact that the great white shark is coded as the ultimate killer. And we forget yeah. that great white sharks aren't even the ones that necessarily kill the most humans per year. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would recommend the reef. It's it is quite scary. Um, and and could, have you got any recommendations of like films which are so 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 bad that they're amazing? Any of the multiple headed shark? Oh films? yeah! <laughs> I think they've got up to six. I think there is a six headed shark in mm -hmm. one of these. Um, but they're all great and ultimately so futile. Because a shark having more heads doesn't doesn't really do much. Like it's better to have a shark that suddenly grows arms. Like an armed shark would be more scary than a multiple-headed shark because they're all at weird angles, and it would mean that each individual human would have to almost throw themselves into the mouth. Which it, is kind of what it, happens in those movies. Yeah, and they're just like, could you just stand that way a little bit, and then it's definitely going to be able to eat you. Right. It's that like, let's, let's have a normal conversation on the beach, except we're going to be standing maybe three and a half feet apart. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think to me, that's where you just that is the most excessive form, even possibly more excessive than Sharknado. That's the most excessive form of shark violence. Oh, I think it's that, I think it's worth bringing up. And I don't know how we've skipped this one up to this point, but um, Fulci's Zombie 2 Ooh. has one of yes. the most iconic shark scenes and it's the zombie versus shark fight that is all practical effects with a real shark wait what they used a real shark that was a real shark 
That is amazing. So so the story, how it goes is they were filming it right. And the, there was a guy who was a shark handler, which apparently is a job that I need to have. And like he he shows up to Shet. He's He's got a shark and they're ready to film. And the actor who was going to play the zombie is like, uh, fuck you, bye. There's no way I'm doing this for your shitty uh, uh, Italian ripoff of Night of the Living Dead. And so um, instead of abandoning the scene, they're like, hey, shark handler, you want to do it? And he's like, okay. <laughs> and so so it is all real. It, it is the shark's handler uh, just kind of like playing around with the shark and getting into a little uh, zombie scuff with him. And the scene where he rips off the arm is obviously a fake arm and he's got his real arm tucked inside the shirt. But that is all happening on screen. And it is probably my favorite shark moment in all of cinema. That's incredible. We, I want to try and find like a YouTube clip of that scene because that sounds amazing. Yeah, there's, there's even a song by a band called uh, Send More Paramedics and the song is Zombie vs. Shark. Quite good. <laughs> I do. Okay, so now I'm, I'm just going to suggest that maybe it's not that realistic. Now, I have no problem with oh, the no. idea that the, <laughs> the, the shark could be scavenging dead flesh. That's reasonable. Sharks do eat dead whales and things like that. So right, the idea right. that they would yep. be repulsed. I mean, they're not very fresh, so they're probably going after a fresher zombie. Right. Um, so that, that seems reasonable. But would the zombie – why – what would – why would it be attacking? Because zombies don't really seem to attack unless they're going to try and eat something. So that would be suggesting that the zombie has a self-awareness of its own destruction, which seems <laughs> just not seems to be the basis of a zombie. I just I don't think they've thought this out. Who did they you know, consult? You know, you're completely right. That scene of a zombie fighting a shark is just completely unrealistic. Uh, it totally took me out the moment. <laughs> They've got a shark expert. Where was their zombie expert? Where was their zombie? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Where, where was where was their zombie handler for this episode or this film? I I mean, there are too many films I've actually seen where I've just gone. All you needed was one academic whose specialism <laughs> is that particular monster, and yeah. it would be a billion times better. Right. And you don't even have to pay academics much because they're used to doing stuff for free. <laughs> just say your name will be in the credits and they'd be like yeah two thumbs up brilliant right yeah, yeah put me absolutely. in the credits and give me a free ticket and i'm down yeah invite me to can that's that's <laughs> it we don't ask for much do we we don't ask for much no and it would be nice if a better movie at, you know won the palm door at Cannes than say roman polanski's next film right. i just feel like i think it would be better that a film that i was involved in about werewolves got that uh, <laughs> are you, time listen, for are you true, listening film industry <laughs> yeah it's time for the true horror renaissance where like uh, uh where shark wins all of the awards at the next can and then goes on to sweep sundance right after Absolutely. And I'd make it really, it would be very clever. See, it would be parodic and it would genuinely be uh, an intense satire on our society and our need to violate the natural world. It would. And also, if it was a were shark, you could actually make it so that it was a human turning into a shark. And then potentially you could get around that female scientist has sex with were shark. Oh, there we go. Oh, That's man. the solution. 
I wasn't even thinking about that angle. When I said a were shark, I was thinking like, what if a werewolf bit a shark? But you're like, totally right. That is way better. Mm. Under the yeah. light of a full moon, a, a humble beach going stud gets bit by a shark and thinks he escapes. But his, <laughs> his fiance, the local um, ichthyologist, let's go for that. Finds out the startling yes. truth. I think we've got I think we've got a million pound idea. Yeah, there could be a heartbreaking scene involving the transformation in one of the big tanks. Ooh. And she like he starts changing, she flips him into the big tank, and then she's watching him through the screen, and he's he, he, like he's just gone full shark, so he doesn't recognize her for who she is. I, I, and then ultimately, at the end, she realizes that perhaps that's a better way to be, and makes Ooh. the decision to be bitten herself. Ooh, uh, I, I'm moved. I'm, I am, I'm. Uh, this, <laughs> I can't, I can't believe we have gone from talking about uh, the 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 great uh, leftist film series Sharknado to creating the next great work of Hollywood cinema. This has been an incredible episode. It's it's the natural course of things to go from Sharknado to talking about what what we do for love. Thing allows for the other to become more humanized and perhaps helps us get a little bit closer. Um, so that's it. As long as you make the other fit, then you can sort out any major issues about their otherness. Yeah. Amazing. That's what Twilight taught me. Unironically, we are going to have to cover the Twilight franchise at some point because I am an unabashed fan, so. Uh, Okay. Get ready for that one, John. Well, we dealt with with, uh, your fondness for Rob Zombie's Halloween. We'll deal with this. All right, that's all I, think, um, I think that's probably a, a good place to, to. That's a good. That's a good note to go out on. Talking about falling in love with with shark beasts and teasing a Twilight episode that'll maybe never happen. Uh, so, so as as we go out, any any closing thoughts? Other than I'll hold you to that Twilight episode. Deal. Um, I. I guess the final thing is. Um, I'd always advise people to look up the stats on shark attacks and maybe donate some money to a shark conservation um, charity in the name of Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, like, uh, you know, if if you can't do anything, spite is always personally healing. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. (laughs) Yeah, spite, spite gets things done. Let's be as bitter as the coffee that Ash is drinking right now. <laughs> uh, it is actually intensely bitter, so yes. <laughs> Amazing. All right, uh, so uh, so Kaya, where where can our where can our listeners find you on the internet? And uh, do you have any books out or forthcoming that they can buy? Any other ways that they can support your work? Publication wise, I'm not that efficient, but you can. The best place you can probably find me is on Twitter, which is at Kaya Frank, and Kaya is K A J A, like Kaja, and Frank is F R A N C K at the end. Um, you can also find more about my research on at 
O-G-O-M project. Um, and I am part of a research hub called Open Graves, Open Minds, which looks at uh, monsters, paranormal romance and young adult gothic. Amazing. And we will link to all of that stuff in the show notes so our listeners can get in touch and get involved with the spooky science. Absolutely. And I, I can't recommend the work of Open Graves, Open Minds enough. Some of the most yes. exciting stuff in Gothic studies that's happening today yes. is coming from them. I um, love so everyone that's a part of that project. Their, their work is just beautiful. Yeah, so please oh, do thank check you so out. Much. Very complimented. The Open Graves, Open Minds project. And as Ash said, we'll put it all in the show notes for you. Wow. Thank you ever so much, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been so much fun. Thanks for coming on. We'll have to do this again. Absolutely. I'd say Twilights or Crocodiles. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay. spooky.